We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. If you have a Bible with you, Matthew chapter 4. If you're turning there, if we haven't got a chance to meet, my name's Lance. I get the, the joy of serving as a pastor here. And uh, I often get the opportunity to consider the Bible together, and that's what we're going to do now for the next number of, of minutes. If you are visiting or just sort of jumping in, I want to give you a little bit of an orientation to help you. It's a pretty good time, actually, to jump in on our study of Matthew. We're only a few months in, just starting the public ministry of Jesus in the middle of the fourth chapter. Uh, so, though we're going to be in this book for a long, long time, if you are coming in now, you're at a good, good point. If I gave you a, a couple of updates, you know, sort of how if you jump back into the middle of the story, sort of like previously on Lost or something, let me give you a little bit of a rundown of where we've been. So, Matthew has been intent on giving us a sort of inauguration. He has announced the birth of a king. It started with his connection to the throne of David through a lineage and described all of the ways in which this king has fulfilled the prophetic promises of God to bring about a rescuer or a savior. So the king has landed. We've seen that. And then because a king has landed, we have been anticipating and begun to see that his kingdom is starting to come into view. At the end of the passage from last week, we see that Jesus begins to preach a kingdom. So there's a king, and then a kingdom has come. This idea that heaven itself has now invaded This is an invasion of what's taking place here on earth, and we have welcomed both king and kingdom. The thing that we're asking now is, in order for there to be a king, he needs to rule someone. In order for there to be a kingdom, it needs to be full of people. So the question becomes, how does this kingdom get subject? Who will be subject to King Jesus? And what we're going to find is is that in Bible terms, and the way that scripture, Scripture describes it, discipleship, someone who is a follower or a learner comes into view. And what we see now, beginning in the middle of Matthew 4, and I'm going to read from the 18th verse down to the end, are the first moments, at least from Matthew's perspective, we'll see how that's in line with Mark and Luke and John in a little bit, but from Matthew's perspective, the first time that we begin to see those who will follow explicitly this king who has landed and is ushering in a kingdom. So I would love if you follow along with me. I'm going to start in verse 18, get down through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to pray momentarily. But verse 18, the gospel according to Matthew in the fourth chapter goes like this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray now just for a moment. God, help us to understand These specific words, they are your words. 
I ask, Spirit of God, that you would help. I would love to be of benefit to your people, and I know that anything that is of lasting, transformative benefit is going to be because you cut underneath it all. Show us our desires, our affections, our motivations. Give us life. I pray for active minds, softened hearts, a will that is open to be transformed. So God, help us. I thank you for everyone who has gathered here these moments. We pray that you would bless in such a way that we see you more clearly, know you more fully, and get the joy that comes with your spirit. So we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I asked you to make a list of churchy words, words that more or less only happen in religious context and perhaps even within Christianity, I bet you could come up with some. You know, the kind of words that if you're talking with a couple people at a Bible study make total sense. You'd say things like, you know, it's just the grace and sanctification of the word. Or, you know, the, the glory of something. You could probably come up with a list of words, and one of the words that may be on that list is this word, disciple, or discipleship. It's not common to say that phrase. If you were speaking with those same dudes you were in a Bible study with, and you mentioned it at some people at the gym or someone who's unfamiliar with religion, they would think you were very odd. They wouldn't understand what you were saying. And if you described someone that you were connected to or someone that you listened to as being the person who you followed as a rabbi and you were a disciple, they would begin to walk away from you slowly. It's not a common word in the world. And yet, in Scripture, and obviously within Christian circles, there's a reason why we use this phrase or this idea. And what I want to do this morning is first to hopefully stir your imagination or to make a point concerning the human soul and discipleship. Then we're going to look at Matthew 4, especially in relationship to the book of John and Luke. And finally, I'm going to offer some thoughts. I'm going to be so bold, and I'm going to say a few striking thoughts on discipleship. Now, I say striking in hopes. They were striking to me, and I'm just hoping that maybe one half of one of those thoughts is somewhat striking to you. So that's the bar for this morning. So first, let's think about the imagination related to the human soul and discipleship. Then we're going to dive into the specifics of these texts and then consider discipleship and its formulation in our life. Here's what I would say definitively. Though discipleship is not a phrase that most people refer to, they might call it life coaching, or I have a mentor, or I have a guru, or something. I believe that at the center of every single human being, there is a design for discipleship. We are simply made to be captured and to follow. There is something about our minds and something about our affections and something about our time that is meant to be stirred such that we dedicate ourselves. And we dedicate ourselves in different directions. And I could get at that perhaps just by asking you a few questions about the way you organize your life. I thought about discipleship because a couple weeks ago I was talking with someone about the Super Bowl. They were going to a Super Bowl party. So at that moment you have a dance. There's a dance that comes with someone describing they're going to a Super Bowl party, and that dance is this. I need to discern how committed to football this person is. Everyone goes to the Super Bowl party, but you can tell immediately if I just say something like this, oh, who do you want to win? And if a glossy look comes over their face and a little bit of embarrassment, they might even say something like this, who's playing? What sport is it again? 
I just love the dip. All right, that's their level. Might be someone else who knows who the teams are, but you ask them concerning the Super Bowl, and they might say something like this, and this is what I heard a couple of times in conversations. They'd say, oh, I'm sorry. I, I like football. It's okay, and I, I like going to the party, but I don't really follow. I don't follow it. That's a phrase that people use. And to follow it means this. They would say something like this. I'm not a disciple of football. It hasn't captured my imagination. I don't give it much time. I'm not devoted. I don't learn concerning the thing. I'm not wrapped up in it. Now, you may know, and I think we could use football as a good example, you may know that even within someone who does follow, there are levels to these kinds of things. When I first moved to Tallahassee, I would have said, oh, yeah, I like college football. I follow college football. I could tell you most of the main coaches, who's good. I follow the rankings every week. I'm going to watch some on Saturdays, always watching the playoff games. I know more or less. I could give you the handful of people who probably win a Heisman in any given year. I mean, I'm a, I'm a follower of football. What I didn't realize is that I would run into people here who were disciples in a totally different way. When I said that I followed football and liked college football, they started saying things like, yeah, did you see that 17-year-old kid down in South Florida? He's got a recruiting visit to four schools coming up in the next month. And I began to say, wow, I don't know what you're talking about. And this is, and they said, yeah, yeah, totally. I think it's going to help our roster because, you know, the, the backup linebackers when we go to 4-3 have been depleted in the last couple of years. The guy's got bursitis. It's going to hamper him going right to left. And I think when we run this set, it's going to, and, I, and you start to realize, wow, I thought it was a follower, but I'm not. They know about every letter of intent. They know the recruiting trail and who our best recruiters are. What's amazing is they not only know depth chart of the current roster, but they could tell you the depth chart in the current ro- of the roster 10 years ago. You find that some people are so devoted and such followers of specifically FSU football that when you talk about anything else, they tie it to their commitment and connection to that. If I name a football player somewhere else, hey, do you see that guy who plays for the Ravens? Here's the trail they go to immediately in their heart and their mind. Oh, Ravens, then he played for Tennessee. Yeah, should have had him. He was going to come to FSU. His dad's an alum. You know that, right? We recruited him, and on his third visit, he got a casserole, got sick in his stomach. I think it turned him off. He went to Tennessee instead, but he should have been here. And what started with me saying, did you see that play from the guy on the Ravens in the NFL? Ends up with them connecting it to their devoted following of the thing they're connected to. Now, football's an easy one. Happens to be big in our culture. Some of you are a little smug right now. You say, yeah, those people with football. Let me ask you about Jane Austen. Everyone has some level of discipleship that ekes out. If I asked you about Jane Austen, you're too smug for football, maybe. I shouldn't have said smug. It sounds mean. Maybe you're too sophisticated for football. (laughs) But I asked you about Jane Austen, and if you started nerding out, you'd be like, yeah, you know what's crazy about Jane Austen is that her mother was actually a baker of raisin cakes, and they show up 17 times in two of the novels, and it shows really a connection to her childhood, which was amazing. Quaint little village. Have you been there? I've been there. People go on about the things that they're devoted to because they've been designed to be captured. Their imaginations want to be stirred. Their affections want to land. And their time needs to be spent. I think one of the keys to a good relationship with anyone is to be an investigative reporter. Ask them enough questions until you find out what they're a disciple of. Some people are shy. It's going to take a while, but eventually you'll find it you'll see them begin to describe the level of knowledge and commitment that no one else has. Sometimes they're a little embarrassed about it. It might be something they think no one else follows. 
They don't want to admit to you that they just love math and formulas. They're a part of the Microsoft Excel fan club. They watch competitions. And like, I don't want to tell any of this, but on Saturday, I spent three hours watching the Microsoft Excel championships. You know, this kind of stuff exists. There are groups of people, devoted followers, to who can come up with the best, I don't even know how to use the words, formulas, I guess is the word, right? The, all that stuff, that's what they do. They're into it. I believe that discipleship is part and parcel, and it's a clue, it's a hint to how God designed us. It happens with artists and their music. You ever encountered someone who could tell you not only the songs on an album, but the order that they're in? and why they were written that way, and what the artist was thinking when they said it. Which boyfriend they'd broken up with that caused that kind of angst. They know all the things. It happens with artists and their music. It happens with architects and their buildings. It happens with authors and their books. Sports teams and their players. Politicians and their parties. It happens with economics and their systems. We are designed to be disciples. The question becomes, what are we giving ourselves to? And because Jesus has landed as the king, and because he's building a kingdom, we should begin to look for the rightful following, the discipleship that comes from Jesus not only being king, but the creator of every single soul. What does it mean for a person who has been created and designed to have their imagination stirred by the God of the universe, to have their affections land on Him, and to have their time committed to glorying in Him? What does it mean for them to be uninterested? It means that some fundamental disconnect, some brokenness of soul exists. And what Jesus does when he comes and he is revealed from heaven and then revealed in his ministry is he begins to set right that disconnect to reconnect and to set us on the path to discipleship for which we were designed. Inevitably, that happens to a few people in Matthew chapter 4. Now, according to Matthew's account, we're going to look now at the specific details of his account And remember, one of the great things about learning in the Gospels, one of the great things about studying and saying, let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, is that you also have the Gospel according to Mark and Luke and John. So we're going to have an opportunity to cross-reference and say, what is happening here? From Matthew's perspective, this is the first time that we see explicit following of Jesus, explicit discipleship. It tells us, the beginning of verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, it does not give us an exact time And we're going to have to come back to that later, because one question we don't know fully is when exactly does this account happen? It told us at the end of verse 17 that he began to preach. He was doing public ministry in this area around the Sea of Galilee in these small towns, but we don't know exactly when this encounter happens. There's good reason to believe, which we'll see in a moment, that this has been some period of time, maybe even up to a year after Jesus was baptized. He has had a kind of public ministry that's been stirring and swelling, but when you read in Matthew, you don't see that directly. What we see is this account. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. Now, for context's sake, the Sea of Galilee is more a lake than a sea. You should not think Mediterranean. You should not think, I'm self-conscious about this. Do you say Caribbean or Caribbean? I don't. You know that tropical vacation sea, that one. Think less that 
and more good-sized lake. In fact, some accounts throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament itself refer to the Sea of Galilee by lake. That's the way that it's described. Now, I, I tried to give some detail for this if you like specifics. Some people are into cartography. I've got a buddy who just loves this stuff, endless books of maps and map makers. Just so you know, by surface area, the Sea of Galilee is about 10 times the surface area of Lake Jackson. So you got that in your mind? There's Lake Jackson, 10 times, so big lake, but not sea in the sense of you can spend days and days and days getting lost in the white-capped waves. Jesus is walking along that area, small fishing villages. Think hundreds of people, maybe into the low thousands, not tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands. And Jesus is walking, and he sees two brothers. Now, we should be asking the question right away, does he know these brothers? How does he know that they are brothers? And what we're going to see from different accounts is that he likely knew them already. They were known to him. He sees Simon, who Matthew tells us is called Peter, and Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. Now, they were fishermen by trade. This was their livelihood. They lived this. They were not fishermen like so many of us, so many especially of the men in our church, who fish when they can and if they can, and all of the rest of real life gets in the way. But as a part-time devotion, they are fishermen. Simon and Andrew, and we're going to find out later they had a business with Zebedee and his sons, this was their livelihood. They would have known all there was to know about fishing, and they would have been found there because they needed this for their livelihood. So Jesus steps in, and he says to them, these fishermen who were not fishermen because they like to go every once in a while with their grandfather, they're fishermen as a livelihood. He says to them, follow me, and gives them this short little seven-word speech, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Now, if you were in the middle of your job, and your kid's lunchbox fullness depended on you coming home with something, if you were in the middle of working a job with coworkers and another business that you had committed to, and someone walks up and says, follow me, and then all they give you by way of a halftime speech is seven words, I will make you fishers of men, what is surprising to us is the next phrase, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And much has been made, and I think that there is an instinct here, a sentiment behind this that is absolutely true. That is amazing. Something about the power and the person of Jesus convinced Simon and Andrew, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, that whatever else they were doing, whatever obligations they had needed to be set down, and they needed to follow. It doesn't end there. Matthew goes on and he says, you know, it's not just them. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They were mending nets, and he called them as well. They don't even, at least word for word in Matthew's account, get the speech. He simply calls them. And again, here's that phrase. The idea of immediately is much more prominent in Mark's gospel. Mark moves quickly through everything. Everything is immediately, immediately, immediately. Matthew borrows that urgency here, and he says, the same brothers immediately left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, there is something to be said for this level of willingness to drop everything and go. 
There are very few circumstances in life that right now would make you drop everything and leave. Your level of devoutness is tested in that moment. So much could be said about the sentiment and the willingness of these brothers to immediately leave everything and go. In fact, it would be very easy to preach a kind of radical, immediate, you must say no and hate everything compared to Jesus and just go. There are moments like that in Scripture where the immediate and ongoing response to Jesus is yes, and it's always worth it. That is a true fact. However, what I want to consider this morning is the idea that it is likely that Andrew and Simon Peter, as well as James and John and probably their father Zebedee, this was not their first encounter with Jesus. This was not a strictly miraculous level of devotion that none of us could possibly attain. Because if you're like me, you might read a story like this and think to yourself, oh my goodness, I can barely get to church on time. And I I feel really committed. Like my heart burns for Christ. I want to be faithful to Him. But real life, I'm just so divided all over the place. I can't measure up. And this is one of the places where I think studying Scripture with Scripture helps us so much. I want to turn to John chapter 1. I'm going to make the case that this particular instance when Jesus calls these disciples was actually after some period of time where they had the time to process and to consider the cost concerning Jesus and his ministry. This is John's account from John chapter 1, verse 35. And remember, James and John are in Matthew chapter 4, so John's account is pretty important to us here. In verse 35, this is right after the baptism of Jesus, which is recorded in the Gospels for us. It tells us this in the 35th verse of John chapter 1. The next day, again, John was standing with with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist with Andrew and Simon Peter. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So, the day after his baptism, which was very public, and remember, in a small town. You ever grown up in a small town? Is there anyone in that town that you don't kind of know of already? You know more of everyone's business than you want to know. Jesus had been living in this place for decades, had been around the place for a long time, out in obscure places around Jerusalem, He would have been known of, and then heaven itself reveals who he is, and Andrew and Simon Peter are already followers of John the Baptist, and it tells us that John the Baptist points out Jesus and says, that right there, that's the Lamb of God. So, they begin to follow him, which is interesting, and Jesus must have taken it this way too, but it seems a little creepy, you know? You can just imagine the scene, they just peel off from John the Baptist. They're kind of sulking around and sneaking. And they overhear him say he's the Lamb of God, and they just start to follow. So Jesus, it says in verse 38, turned and he saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And if they wanted to be slightly less creepy, that's not the question. (laughs) What are you seeking? Why are you following me? Oh, nothing, no big deal. Where do you stay? 
So he said to them, and this is the gracious nature of Jesus, he wants them, he knows that he's going to have followers. He says to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. 10th hour would have been mid-afternoon or so. And they spent then at least this full day with Jesus, conversing about things, probably hearing his teaching from the Old Testament law. They said rabbi to him. They already saw him as an authoritative teacher. They may have already listened in on or been around on some of what Jesus had taught. It tells us then one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So this is clearly a different account than them being in the fishing boat in Matthew chapter 4 and came earlier in Jesus' ministry and life. So Andrew is one of these disciples, and he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So Andrew, having heard John the Baptist, who he is already trusting and found trustworthy, he hears John the Baptist say, that's the Lamb of God, could have possibly been at Jesus' baptism itself, spent a full day with him, and is beginning to be convinced such that he goes to Simon and he says, we found the Messiah, the Christ is here. And he brings Simon then to Jesus. Jesus looks at him and he says, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So when Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 4 that it is, he comes up on these two brothers, Simon, and parenthetical, who is called Peter, it's likely that Jesus has already renamed him Peter. They have had interactions together. They were likely already, if you would have asked Andrew and Simon Peter, they may have said something like this, I'm coming alive to I'm coming around to the idea that Jesus is the Christ and they would have been a somewhat committed follower of his, likely already. That means that by the time Jesus showed up and gave them a seven-word halftime speech and said, follow me as a kind of command, that God's Spirit likely would have been working in them so that over the course of time they would have been counting the cost and they would have come to the conclusion that their availability and willingness to follow him was the path to their greatest joy and the greatest life that they could be offered. So their obedience immediately is admirable. It's still something to emulate, but it is probably not quite as shocking and strange as Jesus coming out of the darkness as a surprise rabbi and saying, you, you, follow me, and they just leave their business behind. I'm going to go on with John chapter 1, and you're going to see that this same kind of thing seems to have been happening around Galilee. I'm just going to read a few more verses. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to me, follow me. Philip was Bethsaida. The city was from there, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then you may know the rest of the story. They go find Nathaniel. Nathaniel interacts with Jesus, and Jesus says to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree before you were coming. And it turns out that Nathaniel says, wow, something is happening here. In other words, their imagination has been stirred by Jesus. Their affections are beginning to turn toward him. And all of the evidence surrounding Jesus is beginning to line up that he is the fulfillment, that he is the Christ. The people they trusted the most, like John the Baptist, vouched for him. One more account that helps to give more fullness to Matthew chapter 4. This is in Luke chapter 5. Not only would Jesus would have been known to them, 
But we find that there was a surprise and miraculous moment that takes place here as well. Matthew does not record it. Perhaps he does not get the first-hand account of this taking place, and so he doesn't include it in his gospel. But Luke's gospel does. And there's some connection between Peter and Luke, and so when Luke writes, people think that he got maybe some specific information and he felt more comfortable or something. But this is how God is moved by His Spirit to include detail in Luke chapter 5. We're not going to read the whole account, but here's what happens in Luke chapter 5. Jesus walks up to those who are fishing. He walks up to them and he says to Andrew and to Simon Peter, hey, why don't you throw your net in over there? Now, have you ever been really exhausted and really working forever at something, gotten to the point of nearly expert, and you're just trying to make it work, and then some dabbler comes up and begins to suggest things to you? You ever been in that spot? You ever been like a contractor who's designing something, you get them to the end of it, and then some guy just walks by on the street and says, well, I actually think, you know, when I frame up some walls, what you got to do is get the studs in an angle over there. You ever had that feeling inside of you where you think to yourself, oh, this guy. It's like in Job when he says to to his friends that wisdom lives and dies with you. That's what he says to them when they're giving him advice. Oh, I see wisdom lives and dies with you. So Jesus is that guy. He comes up to the fishermen. They've been working. It says in Luke chapter 5, they've been working forever and no fish. And he comes up and he says, use that net, throw it in over there. And they say to him, ah, we've tried, but okay. They follow, and what happens is there are more fish than can be brought into the boat. Nearly breaks the nets. They're all shocked. This is a provision of miraculous level for their business, for their families, for their livelihood. And it's on the heels of that miraculous moment We're going to pick up in verse 9 of Luke chapter 5. He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Their businesses were partnered up. They were partnered with Simon. Jesus said to Simon then, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. I will make you fishers of men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The immediate following of Jesus, demonstrated by Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, is admirable. It is to be emulated. There is something there. But it is bolstered. By having time, likely months, exposure to where they were counting the cost and slowly coming awake to the reality of who Jesus is. More than that, it was bolstered by this miraculous moment where they could not say anything otherwise than this man controls not only winds and waves, but the very fish of the sea. And so to them, have you ever done something with such clarity that it looks to others as though it's immediate and reckless? But to you, you say to yourself, no, 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 I've looked at this from every different angle. I know exactly what's going on, and I've never been more confident. Immediately, for Simon Peter and Andrew, immediately for James and for John, simply was the no-brainer outcome of an invitation from the king of the universe. They had seen and responded. Discipleship and worship, I think, are really close. When you become devoted to something, what's the the idea? You've seen the value of it. 
The people who watch hours of Microsoft Excel spreadsheet competition, they just, there's something they see, there's something they feel, there's something they know that others don't. And discipleship, I think, starts with the idea that you see the value of something, you assign worth to it, and therefore you respond. Do you see the value of Jesus? Have you assigned worth to his life and his work and his ministry? If so, then your response in giving your whole life to him will seem like such a no-duh, no-brainer kind of moment. That's how discipleship is depicted by Matthew at the beginning of this king, kingdom, and subjects. It tells us at the end of Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus had a ministry throughout all of Galilee. And it says that he went throughout Galilee. It doesn't tell us exactly. Again, we get in trouble, I think, if we begin to look at every one of the Gospels as strictly and solely chronological one day after the next. I think the end of chapter 4 is a summary statement of perhaps even the whole first year of Jesus' ministry, this early Galilean ministry. It's going to show us that he began to not only command for himself, but he has commandeered a group of very dedicated disciples who see who he is and therefore are willing to give up all for his sake. And we see, which we're going to find out in Matthew's gospel as well, a kind of discipleship that is false. There are great crowds following him, and we're going to learn about discipleship in these gospels not only from what it is, but from what it isn't. Let me for a moment describe at least what I could say was striking to me concerning what is discipleship. Here's the first thing to note concerning discipleship that makes Christian discipleship specifically different. Discipleship related to Christianity is a call not to a set of ethics, not to a feeling or an experience, not to a particular moral position, though all of those things will be impacted. Discipleship in Christianity is first and foremost and exclusively a call to a person. Jesus says, follow me. And all that Jesus says that we obey, we obey because he said it. It's also good and right and true and lovely because he said it. But the main motivator for all that we do concerning Jesus is because we are committed to him as a person. Jesus was an example. But if all we have is an example, we are lost. What we need is his personal righteousness on our behalf. What we need is his personal death on our behalf. What we need is his personal resurrection on our behalf. Discipleship in Christianity is about a person. I think that's why a lot of people are curious about religion, but they don't get us. They may say, oh, I'm very curious about religions. I love thinking about different ethical systems and philosophies and about where value is in the world and about morality. And then they come to a church service of people who are followers of Christ, and the whole time, instead of talking about all those things, we just worship Jesus. And they think, that's really weird. That's really, really weird. But what was Jesus an example of? Is he trying to push us towards some sort of moral or ethic? Yes, there will be moral and ethics that flow, but first and foremost, discipleship is commitment to a person. Lots of people will talk about ways to a good life, ways to forgiveness, ways to end up in the afterlife. But we insist that the only way to the afterlife is exclusively through a person. 
Follow me is the cry of Christian discipleship. Me. Second, a few thoughts concerning discipleship. Discipleship will inevitably include the mission of the person you are called to follow. So Jesus says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. The outflow here, the thought here is essentially this. Evidence of following and commitment to the person will mean that you begin to love what they love and do what they do. Discipleship means you become like those who you are devoted to. So you may have never, ever, ever wore Vans shoes in your entire life, but if you get into skateboarding, give it a few years and you're going to be wearing Vans all day long. You will begin to love what the person you are following loves and do what they do. Jesus has in view the mission that he is about. They could not say, James John or Simon Peter or Andrew could not say, Jesus, I am all about you. I'm just not going to do that fisher of men thing. I just don't care about the stuff that you're doing and calling people to yourself. My, if, I, if I'm going to say this is one of the ways that I think about my life, one of the reasons I love and am committed to the local church is because Jesus died for his bride. He loves the local church. He says, I'm going to build my church. That's what I'm going to do. So one of the things that comes out of my commitment to the person of Jesus is to begin to love and want to cultivate what he cultivates. This is what he's doing, so therefore I say, okay, well, I'm going to love it too. I want to give my life to this. There is a mission that is attached to discipleship non-negotiably. You are enjoined in the mission of the one that you follow. That is an aspect of discipleship. Third, there is a way in which discipleship is simply the proper ordering or the proper leveraging of all of your God-given capacity and context. Here's the crazy thing about these early disciples. They weren't the brightest. They weren't the best. They weren't in rabbi school. They didn't have big followings like John the Baptist. Jesus didn't put together a who's who list of who could be the most effective. If he wanted that, he should have just gone to John the Baptist first and said, hey, I see all your followers. You're clearly very effective. You could be useful in my kingdom. He didn't go to the religious leaders. In fact, later on, he's going to say, you're the wrong kind of followers. But he goes to those who had any measure of God-given capacity and context, and he uses their willingness to follow him. So discipleship, I think, properly understood is, a, is simply this, that you see all that you've been given. Every relationship is not a mere relationship. Every bit of vocation and work is not mere work or mere vocation. Every town and place and street and house that you live in is not a mere town or place or street. But these are God-given capacities and contexts for you to live out a life of discipleship. Jesus uses the metaphor fishers of men, I think, to show us, yes, even you, the kind of stuff that you're doing, that can be leveraged and be useful for the kingdom. Discipleship is a reassignment. It is a letting go of what is ours or mine and a willingness to open one's hands. One other thought concerning discipleship, and I don't know if this is encouraging to you, it is to me. Why do we learn from John and from Luke, considering Matthew, that this was not a spontaneous or first encounter with Jesus. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that discipleship is process-oriented. It's a training ground. 
that to become like the one that you're following may take time. It is a commitment in a long direction. You ever think back on the thing that you're into and remember the first moments you discovered it? How did you get to where you are? How did you become so knowledgeable about fill in the blank? Well, at one point, you didn't even know what the words meant. You probably heard the acronyms and you felt nervous and embarrassed because you had to go Google them. What does that even mean? I don't even know. You probably faked it until you made it a little while, right? You were just sort of like in the group and everybody was talking and somebody made a comment. I'm just going to go back to football. It's easy. Somebody made a comment and they'll be like, you know, I think our defense is a lot like it was in 93, you know? You just think about that and you have no idea what's going on, but you're kind of getting into this and so you just nod your head and you're like, yeah, totally. I know what you mean. Yep. What were the steps? How did you get to the point that you are now? Well, it's a training ground. It's a slow process of committing obedience and affection and imagination in one direction. The way that our discipleship will grow is we take a diagnostic look at how we might grow. Do you regularly look at the person and the work of Christ and say, I want my imagination and my understanding of the value of Jesus to grow? How often do your thoughts go to Christ and His kingdom? Do you need to discipline, it's one of the words that comes under the idea of disciple, yourself more to get that way? If you think about, how, did I learn, how do I know so much about the NFL? Oh, I remember I was in seven fantasy leagues in one year. I remember I studied every backup tight end on every single team. You might say to yourself something like this, am I a discipleship in a training gown? Do I set aside time to read and to consider things that make me like Jesus, chiefly His Word? I had a youth kid that I was trying to disciple at one point, and the biggest problem was him, and no matter what it was that I gave him, he just said, I don't like to read. I can't read. I don't read. And then I hung out with him at his house with his parents. And there, everywhere that he had ever been were stacks and stacks and stacks of magazines about cars. I said, oh, man, yeah, tell me about a 78 Mustang. What's going on with that? And he would be like, oh, let me tell you, the CCs were changed to this, to this, and the body was this, and it was hollow and whatever. He's using amazing levels of words. And I just said to him one time, how did you learn all those words? Oh, I read all these magazines. Oh, so you do like to read. He liked to read. He just wasn't a disciple, maybe, of the right things. So the question is, are you in a training ground where not only can your imagination be stirred to the person of Jesus, but you're giving yourself the time to be instructed in his ways? How do you become a disciple where you're at? Well, you have experiences. You know why people are such great FSU fans? Because they were there with their best friends cheering like crazy when we came back miraculously to beat Florida or when we won the first title or when Jameis hits the crossing route and we beat Auburn. They're, they experience collectively together something that stirs their affections toward the thing they're being discipled in. Discipleship is a training ground with others. Not only are we designed to be animated by things and have our imagination stirred and our affections placed, 
But we are designed to do this with other people. Very few people are ever discipled into loving something or being devoted to something if they don't have someone else to walk with. Some people gain devotion and discipleship over something because they have mantras, reminders, songs. F-L-O-R-I-T. And at the end of the day, as foreign of a concept of discipleship is, I think it's the most basic thing in the world. And you can look around and you can say, oh no, church is just the same. We have songs and mantras. We say... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. We have groups of people, we get together and we stir one another up to remember our discipleship and our devotion. In fact, we gather regularly. It's one of our commitments. I just love getting together with other people to remind myself of what I'm devoted to. Oh, we have periods of reading. I give myself to read, just like I used to read all the lists of the, the tight end chart, depth chart for NFL teams, I, I, I precisely dive in and I want to know the heart of the psalmists and I want to know how the, connect, how the prophets are connected in the time of the histories and I want to know how Matthew connects to Luke and to John and what's taking place there. I give myself time to reading and then sometimes I get together with other people and we think about those things and we talk about it. And just like my buddy talks about, did you see that new update on the Mustang EV double whammy bar thingy? My buddy says to me, did you notice this or did you ever see this before? Sometimes when I confess my sins, it's, it reminds me of 1 John. Have you ever thought about this before? We have a Holy Spirit who walks with us and helps us to experience and taste and see that God is good. Experiences shape our affections. This is what it means to be a disciple. And at the end of the day, I believe that there's one final thought, a striking thought about discipleship. The greatest difference maker in our commitment level and depth of discipleship is merely and completely a vision of Jesus. If you see him as profoundly, deeply, unbelievably captivating, if you say to yourself, this is God incarnate, if you love to watch the way that he deals with the downtrodden and the poor and the destitute, if you love the way he precisely cuts down through religiosity and the pompous, if you see his love and affection being poured out and dying for sinners on a cross as an innocent man, if you find it hopeful and joyful from the depth of your toes, exploding outward, that he could go into the grave and defeat death itself and promise a resurrection. If you see these things, then the old song just becomes true. Then in the face of Jesus, the things of earth become strangely dim. And anyone who comes and talks to you and describes your life, oh wow, you're kind of serious about that church thing, you would just say, a duh, immediately, I left my boats. It's a vision or it's not. It's a value or it's not. It's worth assigned or it's not. And for the Holy Spirit to give us that vision is a great, great gift. The no-brainer aspect of discipleship is going to come up again 
You know, later in John's gospel, Jesus has a moment where everyone withdraws and leaves. They're just not following anymore. So he turns and looks at the few who are around. He says, don't you guys want to go away too? Don't you want to leave? Isn't there some new fad? Isn't there some better teacher? Isn't there something cool elsewhere? Isn't this just a phase for you? And the response is telling. They say to him, "Uh, Jesus, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. Discipleship ultimately is the conviction of soul that you have found the one place where there is words of life. Therefore, everything else you have is leveraged toward that life. That's what Matthew's communicating. 